It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by a candidate. She is running for governor of Massachusetts. We are very excited to welcome Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Hey, good morning, ladies. Um, it's going great. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. Good morning. So this is sort of our first dive into this race. So I want to ask you the like 30,000 foot question of, of why, you know, you, you're the first Latina elected to the state Senate. Uh, you have an incredible background. You have this education pillar that you're running on. I, it, what made you decide this is the race for me. I've decided to put my talents into the gubernatorial seat. This is what I want to do. Like, what are the problems that you are running to fix? Yeah. Well, um, I know how long we got. We only got a few minutes. <laughs> we got 20 minutes. We can get started. <laughs> so look, you know, I, I am a lifelong Bay Stater and um, I've been serving in the state Senate for the past 12 years. And, you know, over that time, I have just seen, you know, every year more, it gets harder and harder uh, for people to live in this state, right? To work in this state, to raise a family here. Uh, the costs of housing and healthcare are getting totally out of reach uh, for most regular folks. Uh, that We have some of the largest wealth divide in the nation, some of the fastest growing student debt. Uh, and these are problems that have just been left to simmer for so long. And we've seen them boil over uh, over the past year and a half you know, of pandemic and uh, the beginnings of racial reckoning. And we have had, uh, you know, I know it comes as a shock to many um, folks from outside of Massachusetts, uh, but we've had a Republican governor for nearly all of the past three decades. It's very strange. It's very strange to us looking at Massachusetts. Like New York has a little bit of this issue. Like we're blue, Mm -hmm. but we will regularly elect a red governor. But we have like the whole other part of the state here that is in the city. Like I think Massachusetts surprises us for this reason. Massachusetts is a blue state that like gets things done and it has, you know, it's, it's good for the people and it's got a great social safety net. And then like, why do they keep putting Republicans at the top of it? Yeah, no, it's very paradoxical because I know folks are used to looking at that electoral college map, you know, yes. uh, on the national news. And so it's easy to, to not see this. But in Massachusetts, we, you know, internally are, you know, struggling mightily uh, with these problems. And a lot of the, the, the challenges that working families and black and brown communities and immigrant communities across the country face, we likewise face here in Massachusetts. You know, we are, we have uh, high averages in a lot of ways in terms of education attainment and uh, you know health outcomes. But when you peel back uh, that onion, even one layer, you see that those averages obscure really large disparities between the haves and the have nots in Massachusetts. So that is at the core of why I am running. Um, I have seen in my 12 years um, that it is entirely possible for us to do better in Massachusetts. We have, you know, in spite of uh, our current governor, Charlie Baker, you know, blocking, delaying and watering down progress every time working families push for it over the past seven years. Uh, when we b- build wide and deep coalitions, uh, we are able to get real, you know, structural systemic change achieved, but it is a mighty, <laughs> it is a mighty battle, right? To win mm-hmm. those, to win those wins. And it shouldn't have to be this hard in Massachusetts. And we should be able to move, you know, with greater urgency and speed through these kinds of reforms. 
What is the main obstacle to um, transformative change in Massachusetts specifically? Is it the demographics of the state being so different, um, you know, Boston versus uh, rural mass, or is it the state legislature, um, which you're a part of? What What is the, in Massachusetts specifically, the obstacle? It's such it? a great question, Zerlina, because, um, you know, you have to understand the problem, right, before you can get to the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I had to, if I didn't one thing, and, you know, so rarely in politics and policy is it one thing, but if I had to name one single biggest thing, I would say the culture on Beacon Hill is really uh, the single biggest blocker. Hmm. Um, and, and honestly, that is not owned by any one party. Uh, but we, you know, there, there's a, an absence of urgency in both parties in Massachusetts in many cases. But uh, culture change can and should begin with the governor's office, right? The governor has uh, the agenda setting power on Beacon Hill. And, you know, where we have had to drag Charlie Baker to the altar on so many things, or just, you know, flat out work, you know, around him or over or under him on things like climate change um, and police reform. Uh, the governor really has the, you know, if we can flip that seat, uh, from red to blue and not just, you know, the color, but, you know, again, infuse it with urgency and put in there a governor um, who wants to, you know, run toward problems with, with the determination to solve them rather than uh, minimize those problems and convince, you know, the people of Massachusetts that they're smaller than they actually are. That is going to make a huge difference. Uh, and I've shown over my 12 years in the legislature that, uh, you know, that I can't, that I in fact do, you know, know how to move in this legislature and get uh, big things done in spite of uh, blockages in both parties. Ed, you mentioned education reform uh, and yes. our funding system being one of mm-hmm. those examples. Yeah, let's talk more about that because we actually started this show by, you know, lamenting the fact that we are a year and a half into the pandemic and we seem to be doing things backwards again um, by, you know, thinking about how do we reopen every piece of this country aside from schools? Like we just didn't prioritize schools, mm-hmm. um, which is just sort of a metaphor for the fact that like we never prioritize schools. We, mm-hmm. we talk a lot about kids and we just never prioritize them. So like with your background in public education, what, tell me what your vision for Massachusetts schools are and what, you know, what ought we be doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the pandemic has certainly sort of juiced, I think, our, our experience of this and understanding of it, right? I mean, just how crazy it was to think that we were going to get back to any kind of semblance of normal without our childcare system and our school system, you know, being very damn near the head of that line was crazy, right? And mm-hmm. you ask any woman, any, any you know, any woman, yep. children, right? They could have told you. Um, so, the the vision that I'm laying out for education and our uh, campaign just put out a really comprehensive policy plan on this a few weeks ago, is is one of uh, universal debt free access to high quality education from birth into adulthood, right? So running from early education and care on through debt-free access to higher education. Uh, and we chunk that out into, into three buckets of early education, K through 12 and higher ed. Um, and we prescribe a plan you know, for how we're going to deliver that universal debt-free system um, at each stage. It's not gonna happen overnight. Mm-hmm. It's gonna cost money, right? The, the price tag, is, we're not trying to hide the ball. The price tag is gonna be in the billions. Um, but just like we're talking about on the federal level, right? this is, this is infrastructure uh, yes. for how we become uh, the Commonwealth that we all that we say we believe in, 
right? And that we want we want to live in, we want to raise our kids in. And you know, in Massachusetts, more than even even most states, right? We are our economy uh, runs on our educated workforce. It is the engine that drives our economy. And we have failed for many years to invest properly in our education system. And we're starting to see the sort of the cracks, right, in um, in that system as we have just sort of rested on our laurels as a state. Uh, and other states are, you know, gaining a competitive advantage. And we need to we need to get back to basics uh, and put major investments in our K through 12 system, our early education, and our higher ed system if we are going to become a state that is continuously prosperous, that has shared prosperity across the board, and where we actually are closing racial and economic divides that we say we want to close. I mean, one of the things about investments in education is it feels like we talk a lot about it, but I don't ever remember like some big education package passing on Capitol Hill or like um, no child left behind. (laughs) Oh, right. That was one, but that wasn't a good thing. So I, you know, I probably, I, I, you know, I think I blocked that out because it's not, it wasn't a good thing. So that's not one that I include. (laughs) That's the only one I can remember. (laughs) You're right though. Um, You're right. Fact, touche. But my question is really about what it would look like if you actually did um, do the bold in, uh, investments in education, because it's so rare that it actually takes place, not that it's talked about on the campaign trail, because it's it's often included um, time to time, um, unless healthcare takes up all the oxygen. Um, but I think that education is going to be a huge thing, given the fact that we've had a year and a half of really unstable schooling for all children, not just um mm-hmm. K through 12 or even um, low income children, it's all children have had disruptions mm-hmm. in their learning that it's going to require um, additional investment. So what it, what would it actually look like in the state of Massachusetts to do that? Well, so, you know, you mentioned about how we so often talk about it, but so rarely get the actual thing accomplished, right? Get it done, get it in the law, actually start rolling it out into the streets. So the, I think that the the Massachusetts K through 12 package is such a case study in that, that we have to be about it um, as Democrats, right? And we have to call on Republicans, you know, to follow their the, moral mandate as well. But as Democrats, we certainly have to be about it, not just at election time, but in, you know, in the back rooms, uh, when the cameras are off and the mics aren't on, you know, but and I'll give you an example. This is, uh, you know, five years ago in Massachusetts. Now we've passed this thing called the Student Opportunity Act. It's going to deliver $1.5 billion with a B uh, in new funding into our K-12 system, heavily uh, targeted to low-income communities. It's really a generational shift in the way that we're funding education in Massachusetts. But five years ago, uh, people looked at that package and they said, that's pie in the sky. That's impossible. Um, but when we were in, uh, there was a commission that was appointed of 21 people in Massachusetts. It was sort of our, you know, our best and top brass in education policy. And um, I was the only person of color on that wow. 21 person, on that 21 person commission um, that was tasked with making recommendations to the legislature about how to modernize our, our aging K through 12 funding system. So it's doomed from the start. <laughs> it was. I mean, it structurally was not set up, right, to address yeah. the needs of the people that it's, you know, that we say that we talk about all the time, right, living in the opportunity and achievement gap. And 
almost everybody went into that commission thinking, you know, we're just going to make a couple modest recommendations. We'll call it a day. We'll call it a win and we'll go home. Easy peasy. Right. And, uh, folks on Beacon Hill, that's, you know, where the, what we call the capital here in Massachusetts, just did not want to touch the issue of opportunity and achievement gaps because they knew it would be expensive. Uh, and just, you know, they did not want to deal with that. And so we were about to, after months and months and months of, you know, hearings and testimony, da, 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 we were about to adjourn without any recommendations that had to do with closing opportunity and achievement gaps. And I looked around and I saw, you know, that where this train was going. And I knew that if I said something and, that it was gonna really cost me in my relationships on Beacon Hill because you know folks were counting on getting in and out without a very expensive set of recommendations. But I also knew that I would be uh, you know, complicit in consigning the school districts that I represent and that I used to teach in to decades more of you know, planned failure. So, you know, I was not going to let that happen on my watch. I just said, look, so, you know, my quiet moments between meetings, I did some soul searching. I said, I'll, I'll be damned if I'm going to let that happen on my watch. And it took organizing, right? I couldn't just sort of stage a protest in a meeting and think it was going to change things. I had to do the one-on-one -on -one organizing work of talking to the other commissioners, calling them, you know, to their best selves um, and motivating people. But I got enough uh, other members of the commission to say, no, you know, this isn't right. And so we uh, forced the commission to continue its work for another six months past the plan deadline in order to make a more honest set of recommendations. And that set of recommendations became the seeds of what five years later uh, was the Student Opportunity Act that has, is delivering this you know, massive new infusion of dollars into our low-income schools. And now you know, I'm talking to superintendents and teachers um, school psychologists out in the field and they're saying, Sonia, like we're starting to see this money actually hit the streets and it's making a difference. And even mm -hmm. after we got Charlie Baker to sign the dang bill, right? He, he resisted it for years. He cut out, he pr made proposals that cut out all the funding for the low income kids. He passed it over his objections. Uh, three, three months after he signed the bill into law, he put forward a budget proposal that still cut out the money for the low-income kids, underfunded it by about $70 million in the first year. Uh, you know, we were able to change, the, the legislature overrode that essentially uh, in the budget process, but it's still a fight. Every dang year, it's still a fight. Um, but we're, because we got that 70 million put back in, now this year, right, teachers and superintendents out and parents out in the world are seeing, you know, it's the difference between having a school social worker or not for their kid, right? Or a reading specialist yeah. or not for their kid. I, I want to ask about your about your upbringing and and what what you're bringing from that into the idea of this new role. You're the daughter of a social worker, and you're the daughter of the first Latino astronaut nationally. Like what? That's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I didn't know about you before I started reading for this interview. Can you talk about? What, what kinds of lessons did you learn from having those two parents and and how are you how are you going to take that into the governor's mansion yeah you know Jess, i really I thank you so much for starting by mentioning my mom being a social worker um because i know you know i'm very proud of my dad of course it's an incredible of course know, rockwellian <laughs> story an incredible immigrant story in our uh in our nation's history but my mom's work as a social worker is equally as impactful. Absolutely. On, you know, and, and informative of my perspective in politics. Um, gosh, what did I get from both of them? I mean, it really, they are the, the DNA, right, of my, 
of my political perspective. Uh, growing up the child of a social worker is a very politicizing experience. Um, I think there's a lot of kids as social workers and teachers who end up in politics because they mm-hmm. see I bet. their parents uh, just sort of, and the people that their parents serve hit up against the same barriers again and again and again. And that's what I saw with my mom. And uh, you, you think there's gotta be a more systemic way to solve these problems. And, um, you know, getting back to this issue of, of infrastructure, right? My mom is an early education specialist and uh, has really schooled me on the just purely foundational impact that those zero to three year old years have for kids. And, you know, the millions and literally millions of words in different dis, uh, disparity that we see for kids who's, you know, on their first day of kindergarten, if they have had early education and care or they haven't. Mm-hmm. And those millions of words are infrastructure for their learning, you know, for the next 12 years. And so that's, you know, that's an example of something that I have learned from, from my mom and her experience that we have to treat uh, human infrastructure as infrastructure. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, from my dad, um, gosh, you know, it is really about um, the importance of you know, being part of something larger than yourself, right? For him, it was about science uh, and space exploration. Um, and, but, you know, for me, it's, it's public policy uh, and public service. Uh, my dad, my poor dad, four daughters, he's still, you know, <laughs> hasn't gotten over the fact that none of us has gone into the hard sciences. But I was telling dad, you know, the, the, the hard sciences, the soft sciences are harder than hard sciences. Um, so, and I think he's maybe coming to see it. Um, I'm sure. I'm but sure he just the the frankly inspiration, right? To yeah. um, sh- go big, right, and um, go confidently in the direction of our values. You know, he came to this country as a skinny brown kid with fifty bucks in his pocket, and you know he was never supposed to succeed. Um, but you know he he pursued his dream relentlessly, and not just that; it wasn't just a sort of individual bootstrap story. But he had the help of institutions that invested in him and believed in him, right? Teachers, librarians, lunch ladies, um, who helped him along the way, and enabled him not just to get to college, but to space, right, and to yeah. break that barrier. Um, and those are systems that we need to preserve and hold up, so that all of the little Franklin Chengdias is out there in the world. Um, are able to contribute and reach their dreams in the way that he has. I mean, he, he, again, you know, came with 50 bucks in his pocket, not, not a lot of English. And now he holds the record. He's tied for the record for the most space flights in U.S. history. And he's inventing the next generation of deep space propulsion. That is just so freaking cool. Okay, if people want to go to your website and learn more about your campaign and get on board, it is soniachangdiaz.com. Senator, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Best of luck on the trail. Yes, and certainly, man. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Please stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.